Hey podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread Podcast. Today I am sitting down with Brother Lawrence Whitney, uh, who is the University Chaplain for Community Life at Marsh Chapel. Uh, he has a deep reservoir of knowledge about uh, the history of the chapel itself. Um, but today what we're going to focus on is some of the work uh, that he does uh, in comparative theology between Christianity and Confucianism. Uh, and the main subject of our talk today is going to be the Protestantization of Confucianism and really Protestantization as a concept. Um, but we'll define these terms as we move on uh, in this conversation. Uh, so thanks so much for coming down to ABC. Thanks for having me. So I think definitely the, the very obvious place to start here is, is with the notice, the, the term Protestantization, how we define that. So what is Protestantization? Let's just start there. Pretty basic. Sure. Yeah, so Protestantization is a social process uh, that uh, happens to religious traditions uh, as they encounter uh sort of our modern liberal democratic capitalist society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's an abstraction from Protestantism, right? Mm-hmm. Protestantism being a Christian movement. Uh, we think of Martin Luther, who 500 years ago split off uh, from the Roman Catholic Church. We think of Henry VIII in England, who decided he wanted a divorce and uh, so also split from the Catholic Church. We think of John Calvin in Geneva, right? These are, these are the sort of founders of Protestantism. Um, and a lot of what they were doing was very doctrinally focused. They were focused on on reforming doctrine uh, and reforming people's belief systems and and from there, their religious practices. But Protestantization abstracts from all those doctrinal issues. And it it looks at um, how religious uh, phenomena are formed in the social context. And what 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 it claims is that religious groups that are not Christian... Um, or at least not Protestant, because you can talk about the Protestantization of Catholicism as well, mm-hmm. um, are uh, encountering this social framework in which they are asked to take on certain shapes and forms and ways of identifying themselves and practices um, that reflect Protestant expectations of what counts as religion. Okay. All right? So um, this has to do with things like uh, Protestantism gets really interested in, in in what are your foundational texts, right? The Pre- Protestant Reformation had a lot to do with going back to the foundational text of the Bible. Um, and so Protestantization also is looking at, uh, incur- ask religious traditions to identify their, their um, foundational texts and to interpret them in certain ways, uh, historically and contextually and, and how they, uh, and, and ask questions about them like, about the nature of salvation and things like that that may not be native to how those religious traditions would have interpreted those texts on their own right can we can we go back real quick then um for for those of us who just want to get a a zoom in on the protestant reformation itself yeah um and look at the the differences in the interpretations between protestant early um early protestants and the catholic church yeah and just kind of get a sense of that difference before we come to the present day. Sure. I mean, in terms of present day Protestantization, it's not hugely relevant, but it, we are in, you know, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation right, now. So yeah. this is this is exciting stuff for a lot of us. <laughs> um, so obviously Martin Luther's kind of the 
um, generally viewed as, as having inaugurated the Protestant right. Reformation with right. his uh, supposedly having nailed 95 theses to the door of the yes. Castle Church in Wittenberg. Uh, you can check out if you're interested. Uh, uh, that church is uh, in stained glass in Marsh Chapel uh, if you want to drop by and check that out. But... Um, uh, he didn't actually do that, but right. that's that's right. the, his, that's the story <laughs> yeah. anyway. October thirty first, uh, fifteen seventeen. Interestingly enough, on October thirty first, I happened to be. Uh, this was last semester, so I was in Spain in a very in a deeply Catholic country, yeah. uh, or at least it has a deep, rich Catholic history. Yep. And um, they had, you know, the rest of Europe, particularly in Germany, they were having all sorts of celebrations and commemorations and so on and so forth. I had been in the UK, and I remember seeing it. You know, at their churches, they all had. Um, you know commemorations and then in Spain there was a, a small exhibit relegated to the lobby of some building that was on a back street to celebrate yep. the Protestant Reformation and I went and I found it and I it was a very good exhibit the historians and curators who yep. created it were awesome but it was so interesting to me that it was so hard to find yeah yeah <laughs> um, it, I mean it, it's it was it fundamentally changed Europe and yeah. it changed the course of history of the last 500 years Um, and uh, it started with Martin Luther in Germany uh, and uh, like like I said lots of doctrinal claims at the social level it had enormous impact Mm -hmm. Um, it encouraged education and literacy universally Right. right? This was not a thing in Europe. Um, Education was a very elite uh, phenomenon in in medieval Europe, and and the Protestant Reformation encouraged educating everyone, teaching everyone to read it, uh, universal literacy, because everybody needed to be able to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, was the Protestant view, and so the um, uh, and and this includes education of women, education of people in in all sorts of different social yeah. and economic situations. And sorry, let's just remember that uh, for historical context that this comes within a century of the printing press. Absolutely. And so that's yep. that's where the importance of of um, the printed word. Yes. Uh, not only it becomes a, a doctrinal. Yep. idea, but it's something that's technologically now possible. Now possible, yeah. yeah. I mean, that was the big problem for literacy, is they're just, yeah. I mean, you know, we take for granted shelves full of books, right? right. Uh, that was just not a thing. Right. Uh, and and re- books were incredibly expensive and very hard to come by. So, uh, you know, you get uh, this massive movement for education. You get um, ideas about, um, in, in part, this came out of Protestant notions of what salvation meant and how salvation is achieved. A very different conception of the individuality of the human person mm-hmm. um, and uh, of the soul and the spirit and and of um, and this eventually in the in the Enlightenment era becomes foundational for our modern conceptions of freedom of liberty of of, of individual selfhood right. Um, right and I mean that was uh, that was a very important part uh, of Reformation thought um, and then the and the conscience of the believer is inviolable, right? This, right. this is Martin Luther's uh, big big thing. Here I here I stand. I can do no other, mm-hmm. uh, and and has to stand on his own conscience in spite of what the church is teaching. And so the the you know, it's hard to talk about the Catholic Church right. at this point, but um, he got, I mean it's not like he came up with this whole wholesale on his own. This right. is a set of ideas that was coming to the fore through the Renaissance and and Renaissance humanism. Um, through um, 
German mystics in German, you know, uh, Meister Eckhart and others, um, who are are having uh, much more clear senses of the authority of the individual person in terms of working out one's own salvation. Right. Um, but uh, in a very real sense, Luther is a turning point because he institutes this as a movement. Right. Um, so so all right so again you know that's just to give a sense of of the history and sure. the break what that means but we need to in order to ar- arrive at this notion of protestantization which is yeah. the subject of our conversation we need to say how did these differences how did this yeah. revolution then get transferred into the, the the social forms that you were talking sure. about earlier well a lot of that has to do with um, and, and there's a lot of history here right but, right. Um, right protestantism uh, got spread globally and as it, 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 it went with it, um, be, went liberal ideas of the Enlightenment right. uh, and uh, capitalist economic systems. Yes. And so Protestantization as a social phenomenon really is what happens when... Um, so if you think of three things, religion, Protestantism, mm-hmm. politics, liberalism, and capitalism and economics... Um, Protestantization kind of happens when religion drops out of the picture. Okay. And so the assumptions actually get bound up in those liberal democratic orders and, and the capitalist economic systems. Um, and their inverses in, the, in their socialistic formations, right? Right. Um, it very much gets tied up in all of that. And so it sets a set of expectations about what counts as religion. Um, in societies that are impacted by this, and and that's most societies at this at this point, almost all societies, right. largely because of um, of the first of all the spread during the colonial period of right. European uh, power and influence around the world uh, and domination right. uh, is really the word there. So, but but what then is the difference when we're talking about Protestantization of mm-hmm. Because ultimately the phenomenon we're discussing is when religions mm-hmm. that are outside of this context come in context come in contact with this Protestant Absolutely. context. What is the difference then between general Westernization, um, so the, the like the sort of missionary impulse, the way we might have gone, and when I say we, I mean mm-hmm. that includes Europeans and colonialism sure. and all this, all these ideas. We might have gone and, and been missionaries and then you know changed cultures mm-hmm. through these forms of imperialism. What is the difference between that and the notion sure. of Protestantization yeah. that you're highlighting in Absolutely. your work? And that is a mode of Protestantization, right? That whole colonial project of making people Protestant is yeah. an early form of Protestantization. Yeah. It's actually different than what I'm talking about, which is yeah. a later stage. And this actually isn't trying to change um, sort of what what some people might think of as the core, the essence of other religious traditions, right? Right. That that colonial form of Protestantization was go out and make people Christians. Right, right. This is actually um, a set of assumptions built in at the social level um, that most of us just take for granted on a day-to-day basis Mm. about what constitutes religion, what counts as religion uh, for people. And, um, for example, asking the question, well, what does religion do? Well, religion is about salvation. Mm. Well, there's a very Protestant idea. Mm. Um, so, so, so fundamentally, what we're talking about is the notion. For, uh, formerly, we're thinking of missionaries going out and trying to trying to shape right. other societies. Here, we're talking about the unconscious assumptions assumptions that we have as a result 
of right. being a Protestant society. Right. And we make religions ask uh, or answer other questions or answer questions right. that we have about religions. And by forcing them to answer these questions, we fundamentally change them. And we ask them to conform to those questions and also to um, institutional structures and frameworks and practices, right? Right. So um, if you think about it in terms of religious leadership, right? So um, a sort of Protestant notion of religious leadership has to do with preaching. It has to do with teaching. It has to do with pastoral care, right? Visiting people in their homes or in their hospital, in right, a hospital, right. or things like that. Well, that's not necessarily native to how Catholics, Jews, Muslims, uh, or or folks from a, a host of other religious traditions expect their religious leaders to behave. Mm -hmm. But what we begin to see is that that um, as those traditions uh, are formed in the American uh, social context, right those communities begin to ask of their leaders to fulfill those functions, mm. which is a little confusing. Right. right? It's, almost, it's almost as if there's a sense of, of competition yeah. uh, to, to, draw, you know, to draw people, and in order to win that competition as a religion, you must do Absolutely. all of the things that the Protestants do, you know, or you must do all yeah. of the things that the other religions are doing such that people get this sort of wraparound social service almost if you're talking about pastoral sure. care. Yep. Uh, rather than rather than staying true to the way the religion has been practiced and the, the spaces it's been confined to previously. Correct. And I think, uh, and that's that's been a, a very effective mode of analysis in, in parts of religious studies, right, is uh, an, a sort of market analysis, an economic analysis of, of the marketplace of religion. Right. Um, and that's a, that's a great way to approach Protestantization, is, is that uh, in order to uh, fulfill... Uh, to take your place in the marketplace and be competitive, you have to do certain things and behave in certain ways. Right. Um, and I think, uh, the, and so to me, the issue is um, that when you do that, you gain some things. Mm -hmm. You gain acceptability. You gain interpretability. People, oh yes, that's a religion. Mm -hmm. um, that's a religious group. Those are religious people. They're right. doing religious things, um, and, and and therefore the ability to be in dialogue with other people who are religious and have right. that be interpretable. But you also have to give some things up. Mm. What do we have to give up? Let's. let's well, this is very interesting. Uh, what do you have to give up? You have to give up. Um, just one of the things, for example, is a political voice to a certain extent, right? Uh, one of the assumptions uh, in our modern Western uh, Protestantized societies is that religion is fundamentally a private matter. Um, and that, uh, and so these notions of separation of church and state that uh, Congress can, shall make, it's in our constitution, right? right? Congress shall make no laws respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Right. So religion has its sphere and the state has its sphere and, and the two should generally stay out of each other's way. Right. Um, I mean, Tocqueville uh, was notable for having articulated uh, the ways in which uh the authority of the state and the authority of religion um, uh, are mutually supportive mm -hmm. uh, in a liberal democracy. Right. And, and he was amazed by that here in the U.S. That was not his experience in France. Right. Very different context right. uh, politically. But, um, but uh, fundamentally, there are two different orders of authority, religion and, and, and politics. Right. And so um, now as we begin to think about Confucianism, that strikes a very strange chord. Right. Uh, because Confucianism is fundamentally about yeah. 
how to behave as a member of the apparatus of the state. Right. So so I want to come to Confucianism, but I want to finish real quick etching out this picture sure. of Protestantization. Yeah. And I want to talk about a lot of the, the underlying um, ideas that we have about Protestant societies mm-hmm. comes from, come from Max Weber and sure. the Protestant ethic. Yep. And then what you, you ref- referenced Tocqueville. Yep. And so can you talk about the ways that those ideas... Uh, coming from the uh, 19th century context, mm-hmm. um, influence our understanding of what Protestanti- Protestantization is. Like, what are the assumptions that they so clearly identified? You'd be good at giving qualifying exams to doctoral students. Yeah, <laughs> um, sure. So, uh, Weber's fundamental idea of the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism is that the um, strength of capitalism of the of the evolution of capitalism uh, out of medieval Europe into the into the modern period um, came as a res- in part as a result of uh, a very par- particular work ethic that is rooted in a very Calvinist specifically mm-hmm. form of Protestantism right and the reason for this is that um, for Calvinists, uh, there's a big question that goes back to salvation, right, of, of how do I know if I'm saved? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the ways they figured out that you could tell if you were saved or not is uh, that if if you were part of the elect, their, their word for saved, quote unquote, uh, is, is, um, have, is wealth, the, the gathering of wealth. Uh, and that if you became wealthy, it was a sign from God that you were part of the elect. Uh, and so you should work hard, right? Um, in order to to demonstrate that that uh, that you are you are part of the elect. But then also part of this ethic is that um, you shouldn't just spend that money on yourself lavishly, right? It's a certain modesty and frugality is a part of the ethic. Uh, at the same time, you shouldn't just give it away mm. because that does things that like pr- promotes beggary is, is uh, the way it was framed in the Calvinist discourse. Um, so you shouldn't give it away. You shouldn't spend it on yourself. So what in the world should you do with it? You should invest it. Mm. Uh, and so the whole, uh, so the capital, the, the Protestant ethic right. um, sort of ends up uh, driving capitalism by encouraging people to work hard, not spend it on them, what their earnings on themselves, not give it away, but invest it so that other people are then using it to make more money, right? Right, right. So, so in what ways does Weber's uh, enunciation or elucidation of this mm-hmm. phenomenon uh, run counter to Christian notions of charity? Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. great question. Uh, and it, it does, uh, there is a certain stinginess to it, isn't there? Right. Um, and uh, this is where, you know, in the contemporary period, you get this sort of um, uh, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps mentality, right? Mm-hmm, right. Um, if you're poor, it's because you're not working hard. Right. Um, now, that's a shift away from the Calvinist interpretation, which right. is, if you're poor, it's because you're damned. Right. And, and, and one of the things, uh, moving, moving uh, slightly over to Tocqueville, yeah. is that he notices, I think he says something where, you know, he's going around and he's talking about what the preachers say on Sunday. And, Absolutely. And he says, you know, the preachers all uh, uh, say that the tremendous wealth and prosperity is yep. evidence. Right. 
of American virtue. Absolutely. And he's astonished by this, being the, the, the Frenchman coming over here and absolutely at the, the boldness of these preachers to be saying that. Yeah. Um, so can you can you talk about the way then, we so we've kind of covered Weber here, can you talk yeah. about the way that Tocqueville's enunciation differs from that and also helps us round out those ideas, those assumptions that we have um, as a result of Protestantization of our society. Sure, yeah. So Tocqueville's coming at things differently. Weber's is, is more of an economic analysis. Right. Uh, Tocqueville's coming at this politically, and he's wondering, what is it that makes American society so successful? Mm-hmm. And uh, so as I mentioned a bit ago, uh, he has this vision of of religion in its domain and the state in its domain, and, and they're really working together right. uh, to generate a prosperous and virtuous society. Right. Um, and so for him, um, the privatization of religion, mm-hmm. right, its movement away from the public square, it's being a separate domain of authority, uh, is really a strength of the modern project. Right. Uh, and just just a reminder is that he's here in the United States in the eighteen the eighteen twenties. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he's. Um, yeah, he's coming over with these very basic questions about right. why does democracy work in America uh, right. in ways that, um, you, you know, he had complex views of how it uh, how it compared with how democracy was emerging in Europe. Uh, and they're very different democratic forms, right. uh, but uh, and, and different instantiations of liberalism. Right. In a sense, the American version, especially by comparison with France, is far more Protestant. It's far more individual. Um, uh, and, um, and and so he was recognizing all of that. Right. Um, and so getting back to the issue of Protestantization, um, you have religious traditions that are being asked to fulfill these, these social, political, economic um, expectations mm-hmm. that may or may not have anything to do with who they understand themselves to be, how they have operated in the social domain in the past. Now, obviously, any time you have a social movement moving from one social situation to another, that movement has to shift and adapt right, right to the new context but but that shifting and adapting is so interesting because the 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 thing we were talking about earlier in the episode is the way that protest uh, the protestant reformation was a rejection of authority Absolutely. and now in the american context protestantism is in a sense helping enforce the authority um in, in a way in the sense yeah. that it is it, it's not helping enforce any specific bureaucracy right but it's helping it imbue the populace with the the morals necessary the values necessary to make the economic capitalist project thrive well what's really interesting here in the u.s is that um protestantism itself Mm -hmm. um has actually uh outplayed itself at its own game Okay. Um, so meritocracy is a fundamental Protestant pr- principle that people should be treated based on their merits. Right. Um, and um, so a great example of this is the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. Right. Uh, which for, for forever and ever and ever was a, a dominated entirely by Protestants. If you looked at, you know, your, your, your diversity was uh, Calvinists, Baptists, and Episcopalians. Um, and... Um, there are now zero Protestant Supreme Court justices. All of the justices on the Supreme Court are either Catholic or Jewish. How did that happen? <laughs> they got appointed. Uh, th- that's who presidents selected. Right. Uh, because they're the best. Right. 
lawyers. Protestants right. just didn't find a problem. They, that's not a category you look for, obviously. Right. No. In yeah. appointing a justice, is their religious background? You just want the best darn lawyer you can get. Right. Um, but then and, we have we, we now, now we're very good at uh, getting a lack of diversity on the Supreme Court in other ways, such as what schools they went to for law school. Absolutely. And so on and so yes. Forth. <laughs> yes. Uh, just Chief Justice Roberts was noted at one point. Uh, people said that uh, you know the the. Supreme Court is fill up with people who all went to elite law schools, and he goes, "Well, no, some of them went to Yale." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> he having been at Harvard. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, right. there's definitely this isn't to say it's a perfect process, so that it, it right. produces a diversity across a range of things. But it is very interesting that this Protestant principle of meritocracy, that the best people should be the ones put into into the, these positions, uh, results in Protestantism right. actually losing power. The right. flip, uh, the other piece of this is that. Um, you're right about Protestantism doesn't um, have any direct authority, right? Doesn't mm -hmm. have any bureaucratic or executive or legislative or uh, judicial power mm -hmm. on its own. Right. However, it, it's part of the va very value system that we the air the air we breathe. Right. right? Um, what's interesting there is not that that's the case, but that we've forgotten that. Mm. Right. So this is part of P what Peter Berger describes in and he frames this in terms of the social construction of reality. Right. Is that um, humans construct our social realities and then forget that we're the ones that constructed them. We just take them for granted that that's the way they that's just the way things are. Mm. Um, and so and that's what's happening here in Protestantization. Right. We take for granted that what we have constructed religion to be is simply what religion is. Right, right. And for me as a comparative theologian, I go looking at lots of religious traditions going around the world going, well, that doesn't look like religion according to what we think religion is. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so it's a, this is a very basic question in religious studies. What is religion? Right. And the right. trick is coming up with a definition that includes Confucianism. Right. But does not at the same time include the Boston Red Sox. That's very tricky. It's extremely tricky. difficult to do. Right. Um, and so the American Academy of Religion gathers once a year. It gathered just this past fall here in Boston. Gathers once a, uh, once a year, uh, ten to 12,000 scholars of religion from all over the country and the globe getting together to discuss how it is that we don't know what it is that we're studying. <laughs> yeah. Or at least can't agree on what it is <laughs> that we're studying. Yeah. Uh, we all want to claim it's religion, but... We don't know what don't that really is. Know, yeah. So okay. So at this point in the conversation, just to provide the roadmap of where we are for listeners, a little sure. interjection. We've gone from a, a, just a, a brief his, historical note on the Protestant Reformation. Yep. Um, we traveled through history into the 19th century. We talked about yep. Weber and Tocqueville and the way that they influenced our assumptions. Uh, in this society, and then how we, uh, through Peter Berger, tend to forget the social realities that mm -hmm. we construct. And so now, if we take a pause here on the, the development of, of Protestantism and sure. talk about the case study that you look into, which yeah. is Confucianism, um, then we can really uh, arrive at the point where we merge these two strands. Yeah. Um, and so just to note for, for listeners who've listened to the podcast and might have looked at our old Confucianism series, we talked to Dr. Neville and we talked to uh, Dr. Bin Song about uh, about Confucianism and about specifically about Boston Confucianism, which is a, a type of Confucianism that tries to take
take Confucianism out of its East Asian, Asian context and put it and bring it into Western societies. And it's a play on words on Boston Brahmin, Boston Confucian, Boston Confucianism. And so the argument of Protestantization is that when you bring a religious tradition into a Protestant society, into a plural democratic society, these things happen to it, the things being what, what Brother Larry and I have been talking about. And so what I think we should do now is take this moment to go back to Confucianism and talk about the ways that Confucianism is inextricably linked to political uh, political questions. Absolutely. So let's go back to 6th uh, uh, sixth, sixth century BC China and talk about Confucianism. Hey podcast listeners, this is Kobe again. We hope you enjoyed that part of the discussion where we developed the ideas of Protestantization with Brother Larry. In the next uh, part of this discussion, which you can find in part two, uh, we will talk about how this applies to Confucianism. We will develop it. And you noticed in that episode we talked about how uh, certain elements of Protestantization require a separation between religion, uh, what we know in America as a separation between church and state. Well, we'll discuss how Confucianism is a fundamentally political uh, way of thinking. Uh, some call it a religion, some call it a philosophy. So we'll, we'll really extend that in part two of the episode. The other thing I'd like to note is that if you're interested in having discussions like this, you can go to bu.edu slash htc to find out more about the Common Thread podcast and how you can apply to be a part of the team. Thanks so much, and we'll catch you in the next episode.